Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. After over a year of deliberation and debate, Senate Democrats' reconciliation bill, now titled the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, passed the chamber over the weekend in a 50-50 vote with every Democrat on board and then Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking 51st vote for passage. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU lobbyists John Green and Chris Hartman are back to discuss the version of the bill that passed the Senate this past weekend how NAHU was successful in ensuring a number of harmful provisions did not make it into that version, and where we go from here. So, welcome back to the podcast, guys. This bill, formerly known as the Build Back Better Act, has undergone various transformations in the last year. Ultimately, when considering the wide variety of provisions that were once a part of this package, overall, how does NAHU feel about the version that passed this weekend? Well. It's sort of like Lazarus, right? The last year and a half, it was alive and it was dead. But all through this time, we've been working on what we thought could be part of any potential package, right? We've talked about, well, if it does come back, we don't want this in it or we don't want that in it. And so specifically, you may remember that there were talk about public options and Medicare for all or lowering the age to 60, Medicare expansion for dental vision and hearing. That was a much, much larger package. There was discussion about employer penalties on mental health parity. And most recently, there was talk about a $35 insulin cap on employer plans, which would have been a huge cost shift. We've spent a lot of time on all these issues over the past year and a half. And I think that the important message here is just that, what was not in this. We'll certainly discuss what is in there, but when we think back to what might've potentially been in this bill, we are in a far better place than we were a year and a half ago. Yeah, this bill a year and a half ago on all sorts of subjects, even outside of healthcare was huge. You remember there was childcare, universal pre-K, all sorts of things going on in this bill. Yes, there are energy and environmental provisions, but twice the size of there and now. And in healthcare, uh, there were all sorts of things in the initial proposal. The initial proposal included a public option as being part of the options that you could get on the ACA that was put out by the Biden administration. That is no longer in the proposal. There was expanding Medicare into vision, dental, and hearing, essentially eliminating those supplemental benefits that you can purchase or being duplicative of what Medicare Advantage already has. That's no longer in the bill. There was various different ways of closing the Medicaid gap. The states that did not expand Medicaid and early proposals had basically a public option being offered in those states where we would create a federal insurance program to fill in those gaps. 
Later, that was changed to where the ACA would be brought down to cover those in there. However, in the end, the final proposal, none of that addressing the Medicaid gap is in the proposal at all. There was also a civil monetary penalty on employers for network inadequacy when it comes to mental health parity. Now, mental health parity is something that NHU very much believes in. We, but However, we don't believe the penalty should be on employers for an inadequate network when they believe that either through a fully insured plan or renting a network through a TPA, that they are getting a uh, adequate network. And there were penalties that were going to go on employers in the house passed version of this bill. There was changing the affordability threshold for employer plans, basically causing employers having to spend more money on health insurance policies for their uh, employee because we changed the definition of affordability. That was also removed from the legislation. And this is all because of lobbying efforts by NHU over the last year and a half, really explaining to members of Congress, particularly the Senate, about these different provisions and what negative impact they actually would have on health care to begin with. It's not just a matter of the bottom line of businesses, while that's important, but like what would the actual impact on health care be out there? What would the impact on insurance markets, risk pools, the hospitals, doctors, reimbursement rates, overall health and health equity going forward? And so we feel very good about a lot of these very negative consequences on employers and the ability to continue to offer health insurance having been removed from the bill. There were even an early first draft of this, a provision that would require independent agents to be counted as employees of insurance carriers. Like That was one of the earliest versions that we saw out there that if you are an independent agent and you sold Blue Cross and then also products like Aflac and all that, you would have technically had to have been counted as employees of each of those companies as opposed to an independent contractor. All those sorts of things were in the original first draft of these. We had tons of different conversations and topics to discuss with members of Congress about why these were bad ideas, why there are unintended consequences to some of these ideas, what problem are they really trying to solve, um, and, and does the solution really solve their problem? And those conversations John and I were engaged in, we involved several different Operation Shouts, NHU worked with different coalitions, different advertising campaigns and publications that members of Congress read and web ads. And so we've been really engaged on a very active campaign to eliminate bad ideas from the reconciliation bill to bring it down to something more recognizable, dealing with really practical problems that are out there. And there's still limitations on what you can do with this. The rules of the parliamentarian do eliminate lots of policy changes. For example, many NHU members obviously want to do prescription drug reform. For example, we would be very supportive of patent reform. Well, patent reform is something that you simply can't do under reconciliation because under reconciliation, everything has to be involving spending or taxation policy. So there, there were already limitations on what we could do in this bill. And then there were lots of bad ideas that I think members of Congress were trying to solve problems. And then they created a lot of unintended consequences out there. So we are very pleased about the ability to eliminate some of these bad ideas, including, as John was talking about, most recently on insulin, we did a bunch of meetings. And the real problem with insulin is not that we don't believe insulin is too expensive. We do think insulin can be too expensive. But the way it was going to be done is we put an out-of-pocket cost of $35 on the insurance policy 
but it would have allowed pharmaceutical companies to charge whatever they want to to that insurance carrier or self-insured plan. And then the consumer would only have to pay that $35. But what would it really mean for the overall insurance rates of keeping that policy going forward? We really need to reduce the cost of prescription drugs at the source itself. Well, and that insulin policy idea did not ever see committee action, you know, was never really scrubbed by CBO for what it would actually cost. Estimates we heard were just, um, you know, astronomical. And we think that a significant policy change like this ought to undergo the scrutiny by the committee through regular order and a hearing with expert testimony and a really vetting of the CBO score. And they just stuck that in there as we thought they might. And so we were able to convince enough people that we need to let this process go through regular order. And therefore, uh, there was a point of order which successfully peeled that out of the reconciliation bill. And I think it's important to also recognize as well, we've been trying to fine-tune this bill and take out things that we wanted. There's been an attempt during the same process for people to go in the other way. Bernie Sanders was using the same reconciliation bill for his attempt to pass Medicare for all and really tried to put those sorts of provisions in there. One of the things that they were trying to do very early on was if they couldn't achieve Medicare for all to lower the age of Medicare from 65 down to 60. That was a proposal that lasted for quite a while in here. I think people had sort of the ad type, well, what would the harm of reducing the age of Medicare down to 60 be? That's only five years. But there are a lot of detriments when it comes to what do the risk tools look like for employers? How are you changing that? What is the effect on Medicare Advantage? Would Medicare Advantage be offered at age 60? Is that still not offered at 65? So do we have people leaving the employer system and only going into traditional fee-for-service Medicare? There's lots of negative consequences that are available to that. Furthermore, there's negative consequences on the, the rest of the overall healthcare system. Uh, Medicare obviously reimburses at a much lower rate. What sort of detrimental activities are you having on rural hospitals at that point who are barely getting by as is and staying open? And a lot of that is because of private health insurance that they're able to stay open. So that, that really terrible of idea of lowering the age of Medicare from 65 down to 60 was really popular last year. And John and I had quite a few discussions about this. And I think many members of Congress didn't see the harm in that. Beyond the simple risk pools, we see the idea of if you lower the age of Medicare down to 60, that is really the first step of heading towards Medicare for all, because they will be back down to those 50 and then eventually just try to take everyone in, right? And truly create that Medicare for all by just constantly lowering that Medicare age number down until everyone's covered. And, and so it was pretty obvious to us that was the first step in that direction. And so these are ideas that I think will probably be brought back up in the future. But as far as this bill being passed, that is definitely out now, and we are very pleased about that. So we've already discussed some of the main healthcare provisions included in the bill, including the prescription drug pricing provisions and the extension of the American Rescue Plan ACA subsidies in previous episodes. But could you remind folks about the specifics of these provisions and what is the timeline for all of this? Sure. So one of the things that's making a bunch of headlines is the idea that Medicare now will have the ability to negotiate prescription drugs. I think there's a couple of things to point out about that. Uh, It is narrow. It's not all prescription drugs. It is also only applying to Medicare. It is not across the board. In earlier provisions of the reconciliation bill, 
There were several provisions that applied to prescription drugs in the private insurance market. Parliamentarians said that that was not in order. So these prescription drug reform provisions that I'm going to talk about really are only applying to Medicare. Now, I will say one of our concerns with that is we do worry about shifting costs. Will pharmaceutical companies, in order to make a profit that they love on Medicare, will they, will they start raising the cost of prescription drugs on the employer-based market? That's a concern of ours. This is something we will have to keep a close eye on coming years to see if that cost shifting will go on. But let me tell you a little bit about the prescription drugs negotiating that we are talking about. So the secretary now will have the ability to negotiate some prescription drugs. And what they will do is in 2026, and that's the first year this takes place is 2026, they will take the 10 most expensive Part B drugs and they will negotiate those out. And when I said the 10 most expensive There are some exemptions from that. For example, if the drug is fairly new on the market, like it's been on the market less than nine years, then that can't be included in that 10. Or if it's a biologic and has been on the market for less than 13 years, then that can't be. So any of these new drugs that you hear about out there will never be in this price negotiations that we're hearing about. What they're hoping they can really target is some of the drugs that you hear have been on the market for many years, and then suddenly the price goes up down the road. That's what they're really hoping to get at. So that's going to be 10 drugs in the year 2026. In the year 2027, it's 15 drugs. In the year 2028, it's 15 drugs, but in both the Part B and D section of Medicare. And in year 2029, it's going to be 20 drugs in Part D and B. And then it's 20 drugs every year after that. And so it is limited, therefore. And all those restrictions on the new drugs all will apply. But that is how the prescription drug negotiation piece will really work on this when you hear about Medicare starting to negotiate prescription drugs. There are some inflation rebates within the Medicare side of things. There's no inflation caps on the private market, but there are inflation caps on the Medicare market about how much people can raise the cost of prescription drugs. I started to mention about inflation rebates. You'll remember during the Trump administration, there was a rebate post rule This, again, uh, was delayed now in the bill until 2021. Finally, let me uh, just come around and talk a little bit about out-of-pocket maxes, because I think a lot of our Medicare Advantage members want to talk about that. There is going to be new out-of-pocket caps. So previously, there was a 5% coinsurance requirement above Medicare Part D as traffic threshold. But that goes away in 2024. And now in 2025, there will be a... $2,000 cap on Part D. And so that doesn't get in place until 2025. So I think that's important to know that that won't have effect on the season coming right up down the road. So there are a number of these sorts of different stabilizers that will take place. A lot of this stuff doesn't happen, particularly on a lot of these forms, at least until 2023 for Medicare. So I encourage people, if they're looking for a little more detail, to look at the Washington update this week and lay out all these dates. I know I just threw a lot of dates at you, but the way these different programs work, we'll be able to provide that all for you. And of course, we'll see Medicare rules on how the cap will work. We are asking the, the plans if what their thoughts are in terms of you know impact on premium with this cap, but there is a ways to go, as Chris said, 2025. 
And also with regard to the way that this price negotiation may cost shift to the private market, that's also under a lot of debate by economic forecasters and experts as to whether there will be a cost shift and how substantial it might be. Some have argued that it actually will set a new price floor and that, you know, employers and plans will negotiate to that new number and therefore not have a great impact on the private market. But all this remains to be seen. I think the important takeaway is what Chris said in terms of this isn't happening on January 1st, 2023. This is actually a couple of years down the road. As we've mentioned in other podcasts, outside of prescription drugs, one of the healthcare provisions in this is extending the American Rescue Plan's ACA subsidies through the year 2025, so that's an additional three years, which under current law would have sunset this year. So as you were just discussing, many of these provisions won't take place for a few years, but there is one provision that will take place in 2023. We've talked a little bit about the cap on insulin costs at $35 a month. As mentioned in the bill, it's for Medicare beneficiaries only. We mentioned that the cap for commercial plans did not make it into the bill. So what does the insulin provision as passed by the Senate look like? Insulin has been a big hot debate in Washington for some time. Even though the drug has existed for many years, we see insulin prices continue to go up in this country. Congress did attempt to address this. There are various ways of addressing this. NHU would prefer the cost of insulin be brought down at the side of the pharmaceutical manufacturing. However, Congress has decided to put an out-of-pocket cap on how much people will have to pay as part of their insurance plan. Now, we talked about this will not be applying to the commercial market because the parliamentarians stripped that out. However, there is one provision that is tucked in at the end of this prescription drug Medicare Part B provision that does apply to the private insurance market that was not stripped out by the parliamentarian. Now, I talked about how many of these other pieces were stripped out. And this does allow a safe harbor to allow you to use your HSA in a high deductible health insurance plan to pay for insulin in a pre-deductible way. So you will, in the private market now, have better access to use your HSA for insulin. And that is one of the provisions that was not stripped out by the parliamentarian before it passed. The House is scheduled to consider the bill today, Friday, August 12th. So do we expect any substantial changes to be made to the bill in this process? Not before it passes the House, because if you did change anything before it passed the House, you'd actually be required to then go back to the Senate to get its approval. The House and the Senate need to pass identical bills for it to be able to go on to the president. So we do expect the House to pass the bill on Friday in what I expect to be almost possibly a complete party line vote, but close to it. I expect no Republicans to vote for it. All Democrats, either almost all or close to all Democrats voting for the bill, and that is how it will pass the House of Representatives. It is now time for the NASU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So, John, what are we toasting to this week? We're toasting to an invitation that we got from NEIC to actually testify. And so our very own Janet Trotwine, CEO of NEHU, will be making some remarks to the NEIC with regard to some questions that they have had relative to agent interaction in the private market, 
but also it'll give us an, an opportunity to talk about agent marketing in Medicare, which is a question that they have raised. And so it'll give us another bite at the apple to, again, call for CMS not to institute those marketing rules because of the detrimental effect it will have in the market. We are also submitting another letter to CMS from the Agent Alliance. The Agent Alliance is the consortium of our sister agent groups, NAPA, Big Eye, PIA, and CIAB, where at, from time to time we will act in concert on an agent issue. We are taking the lead in crafting a letter, again, on the CMS marketing rules that calls for delay of that rule. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.